This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Um, we, last week, Sam and I started uh, sort of a little mini-series here on the subject of the Book of Judges, and uh, last week we talked about Othniel and Ehud, uh, the left-handed assassin. I'm still going to claim that for his <laughs> MMA name. So if you missed that, do go back and listen to it. There was some fun stuff in there. And this week, we're going to be coming to the uh, Judge Deborah, uh, who is the only... There's, boy, there's, you know, now what just happened there, Sam, is a ton of information jammed up at my lips and over. I was stepping on myself. <laughs> there's so many things. Yeah, so many things that are unique uh, about Deborah. I'm going to start off with just one interesting fact, and then I'll, and then we can start going through interesting facts. But the thing that interested me top of the list was Deborah is referred to as a prophetess, a prophet, and she's mm-hmm. also a judge in Israel. And the only other person in the Old Testament to be referred to as both prophet and judge is Samuel. Yeah, that's, that's good company. That's good company. That's some pretty rare air for her. So um, Deborah was a remarkable person. Yeah, so Deborah comes along. Uh, she's going to be the, the third judge that's going to be actually the fourth judge because you get – there's some. There's a really poor, <laughs> this poor judge that's right before Deborah. One verse. Uh, he gets one verse, and he's like amazing. So, if we go from Ehud, the left-handed assassin, yes, and you get this verse. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed six hundred of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. And so you, <laughs> you, get, you get these other judges who get these extensive descriptions and biographies, and then Shamgar just gets like. He gets a treatment, and then one verse, moving right along. And then you get into Deborah. And Deborah's just this really, really wonderful figure. And as, as we'll walk through the story, uh, you see that the Lord has really ordained and anointed her to be one of the really blessed characters in the history of Israel. One of the primary things uh, about this whole story as we go through was um, – all of the different names and all the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just the, the word pictures and the poetry of the names that are involved. Everybody's name <laughs> in huh. here means something. Uh, and I I wanted to start off by saying, just looking into the meanings of the name Deborah, the, the meaning of Deborah is B. Sure, her name means a B. Mm-hmm. And um, I I was reading, I got onto a site, Sam had already heard of this site, I, I'm like, hey, I discovered this cool site. Sam goes, oh, you mean Safari? I'm like, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> but it's a site where, uh, you know, rabbis and people that are that are Jewish studies are writing about different things, and it's just kind of cool to read some of their commentary, because it's not coming from an evangelical Christian perspective, and I love getting their you know, look back on their Old Testament traditions and how they regarded things. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that they that they said is that in our tradition, we talk about the the uh, bee can sting you and also provides honey that's sweet. So it's it's both stinging and sweet. And they said that in you know in our tradition, that's how Deborah was. Deborah was able mm-hmm. to be both stinging and sweet. Um, and 
the the other thing too is that that's also a characteristic that I would say is true of the Word of God. Is the Word mm-hmm. of God is sweet to us, and the Word of God can also sting us mm-hmm. <laughs> when we're sure can. Sure can. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and one of the things just just to clarify, because this is something that I didn't even know until I was in my Christian walk for for years, is that word prophet. Like when when most people hear the term prophet, they think you know like a, a future teller, you know, fortune teller, you know, right. sees the future, Nostradamus or whatever. And a, a prophet is somebody who really just brings the word of God. And it can be predictive, but it, it can also be to convict or just to tell the truth of, of what God wants communicated. And so here's this woman. And so we talked about in the last episode how after Othniel, God brings forth these judges that are – you don't expect them to be the hero. So last week we talked about Ehud. He was left-handed, you know, or at least his right hand was disabled. So he's left-handed, which in the ancient world they saw as cursed, right? And so you never expect Ehud to be the deliverer. Right. And so then you get to the next one, and it's Deborah and her um, – Well, technically Shamgar's the next one, but let's – Well, Shamgar. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody – I guess what his weird thing would be, he's fighting with an ox goad. That's right. kind of cool. That's yes. kind of cool. Okay. So then you get Deborah, and hers is, is more obvious. You know, in the ancient world, women were seen in most cultures almost like property or chattel in a lot of cultures. And here she comes, and she's a prophetess. Like, she holds God's anointing to speak on his behalf. That's stunning in the ancient world, yeah. and and the Israelites would have almost certainly been ridiculed for being under her. But the Lord absolutely is ordaining this and honoring her and exalting her and lifting her up. It's really pretty wonderful. So this her story occurs primarily in Judges 4. There's the song of Deborah in Judges 5, which we're probably not going to have time to, to get through. And mm-hmm. But by all means, folks, go read that. That's really cool. It's the song of Deborah and Barak. Um, and that's, it's really very cool. It's her words, I think, that make it into Scripture there. Mm-hmm. But Judges 4 starts off telling us, When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, which that's interesting again, because it's just, it's like you would think that about the fifth time Israel did this, (laughs) they would learn when we do evil in the sight of the Lord, the Lord's, you know, has somebody come in and conquer us, you know, it's like it's a... It's a pretty tight connection, you know? <laughs> and, and you look at that, and it's like, you know, we talked about this pattern. You know, they do evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord hands them over, you know, in their idolatry to some foreign oppressive agent. And then they cry out, and God raises up a deliverer, and he comes and delivers them, and then there's peace again. And you're like, okay, after, like you said, after about the third time, it's like, okay, well, let's just stop doing that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Couldn't you learn? But, <laughs> but then where where the Spirit comes and punches us in the gut is we do the same cycle yeah, again we do, and we? again in our lives. And it's like you would think after the third time or the 300th time, <laughs> you know, learn, more yeah. like it, we would learn. But we keep turning and giving our hearts to things that are lesser than the Lord and chasing after all these things that end up enslaving us and making us miserable. And we have to cry out. And yeah. it's like this pattern just is part of humanity. Yeah. Um, it's inter- it's interesting, but one of the one of the interesting archaeological things here as well is it it start, it talks about Jabin, the king mm-hmm. of Canaan who reigned in Hazor, and there's actually something called the Mari tablets um, that they found in archaeology that contain historical records that are not from an Israeli um, Israelite perspective, but they mention 
Jabin, the king of Hazor, on these tablets. And Jabin was kind of a, a name like Pharaoh, yeah. except in, in Hazor. Uh, for the Canaanites, and so we so have records. So his name might not have really been Jabin. It might have, yeah, that's like a title almost. Almost way. certainly not going to have been Jabin, but that would have been his title like Pharaoh. Okay. One of the other things that they found in this Canaanite city of Hazor, um, they found all kinds of Egyptian stuff. So we talked about last week how almost certainly all of these cities were at one point under Egyptian control. They mm-hmm. were just vassals that sent taxes back to Egypt, and one of the things you find in Hazor, there's an abundance of Egyptian artifacts. So they found like the base of a, a small sphinx um, in Hazor, where you just see the kind of the lion's claws at the base of something that's been broken. And so very, very heavily influenced by Egypt, which will become significant when we come to Sisera. Yeah, which is the next sentence. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth Haggaiim. Mm-hmm. Now, you were telling me that Sisera, what's, what does his name mean? So Sisera comes from Egyptian, and it's two words, Sisra, and it literally means servant of Ra. The sun and, god. Yeah, the sun okay. god. So if you're in Egypt, the, the main god on the block, like the top dog, <laughs> is, is Ra, the sun god. And one of the things that's going to be interesting in this story is God is kind of putting the story together. Is if if you you know Google Ra, what Ra looks like, he's got the the body of a man, the head of a bird, and then he's got a disc above him. So you know, like in Egyptian hieroglyphics, you'll see some of these characters that have a circle above their head. Sure. Well, that's that's a symbol for divinity. So okay. that means that's a god. But on Ra, Ra's head, what's one of the things that's interesting is his circle is coiled around by a snake, and the viper's face, kind of like Pharaoh had viper coming off of his crown, mm-hmm. Ra has the viper that's coming off of his disc. Mm. And so when you when we learn what happens to Sisera in this story, it's going to be significant i think or at least that's my theory where you have you know somebody who's called after Ra with the serpent crown who's going to have his head crushed hmm. and we'll get to that later that's, that is interesting um it says uh, and the children of israel cried out to the lord for jabin <laughs> this is a good reason to cry out to the lord by the way for jabin had 900 <laughs> chariots of iron uh pretty much that's like those are like <laughs> tanks of that time right yeah. i mean those are like the best chariots if you remember when the Israelites are coming, <laughs> they're coming out of out of Egypt. They're freaking out because Pharaoh's coming after them with six hundred of these select chariots that are made of iron, and basically, like you couldn't you couldn't defend against them. They would just mow you down. And in this story, Sisera is leading an army of chariots that's bigger than what Pharaoh had come after the Israelites before they crossed the Red Sea. So this is like, uh oh, yeah. this is this is even more dire. It would have been the horses would have been armored. Mm-hmm. The the chariots were made of iron. The they had uh, you know just basically these were designed to run you over. They would mm-hmm. come crashing through the lines of your army, uh, and they were the tanks of that day. So mm-hmm. children of Israel cried out for a good reason. And, and one of the things that that's really kind of fascinating is right here you have you're on the border of the Bronze and the Iron Age, and so all all of Israel's stuff is going to be. Ancient, outdated, outmoded, and here comes in this newer technology oh, cool. um, that's yeah. stronger. And it's like they—it's just like you don't stand a chance. Not only do they have more than Egypt had, but they're even better, higher yeah. tech. 
So it says, for 20 years, he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel, and then Deborah enters. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. And interesting note about that we were talking about earlier. Um, and this isn't something that I'm going to be dogmatic about or anything like that, but I did find it interesting. The, the word Hebrew word for wife can also just mean woman. It can mean woman or wife. It's contextual that you understand mm-hmm. which we're talking about. And Lapidoth, or there's a form of that word that means flame or torch. Um, and Sepharia, this Jewish site that I was looking at, also said that uh, in some of their writings, they're saying that this was a, a figurative or descriptive title for Deborah, that woman of flame or woman of torches, this idea of her being very zealous and a real fiery personality, that mm-hmm. it might not have been that she's Lapidoth's wife, but rather it could have been a descriptive thing for her. I think it's interesting to think about in terms of maybe that was her personality. Yeah. And, you know, I'm very sympathetic to that argument. You know, anytime you find in the scriptures, I like they're all of the Bibles translate this wife of Lapidoth. And so I'm I super hesitant to say, well, I disagree. Yeah, I because I they won't say that way either. more than me. Right. But I'll tell you there's a there's a really um compelling reason to think that this is saying a woman of the torch or woman of flame. Um, and, I, and I'll give you two reasons. One, she's called the woman of flame. In other words, she's bright. She's shiny. She's on fire. She's mm-hmm. got all this going on. And her partner, when we get to meet him, Barak, his name literally means lightning. And so you've got you know the flame and lightning coming together. Um, and the Hebrew does that all the time, where mm-hmm. it will pair things like this that, that help you to see it. But one of the other reasons why I'm very sympathetic to the idea that this means the woman of the flame or the torch is from Deborah. You'll go into a couple of other judges, and the torch begins to make um, a significant appearance in some of the judges that come after her. So, for example, you get to Gideon, and well, how does Gideon win the battle? I mean, we'll talk about this uh, in the next episode, but Gideon is going to win a battle by surrounding this valley with people on mountains, and they're all holding, guess what? Torches. Torches. Yeah. Then you get to Samson, and how does Samson you know, bring about his judgment against some of his enemies? He ties to foxtails. Torches. Yep. And so you see torches, and it's that doesn't happen in every book of the Bible, but here in Judges after Deborah, you see the torch start showing up. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that might be kind of a legacy that's come after her. And so I'm sympathetic to that idea. But neither one of us is saying dogmatically that, <laughs> that these translations are wrong because there's very smart men that are translating these things. So, But it is interesting. But I think either way. I think yes. either way, this is a woman who is on fire for the Lord. Absolutely. So she was judging Israel at that time, and she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah. And I thought, you know, it's kind of interesting because you think about that. She's sitting under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah, Ramah and, Beth- and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. These names are going to trip me up all day. And... Um, <laughs> Well, but when I was thinking, oh, she had a palm tree named after her, you brought up another I, – I didn't even think about where this was, but where did the palm tree of Deborah come from? It wasn't necessarily her that it was named so, after. So this is, this is my, I, my theory, and some other people have proposed it, but if you go way back before Deborah judges, when you go all the way back to the patriarch Jacob in the book of Genesis in chapter 35 – when he's on his way back from kind of having been in exile with Laban and he's coming back to the homeland of his father Isaac, there's this kind of brief interruption in, in chapter 35, verse 8, where Rebecca's nurse – so this is somebody who would have helped raise Jacob from, mm-hmm. from childhood, his mother's nurse that went with him um, – to the faraway land. When she comes back, she she dies, and there's just this quick verse that says, 
you know, that Deborah was buried beneath an oak tree right outside of Bethel. And so when you read that here you have the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel, this is probably the palm tree where Deborah, Jacob's nurse who helped raise him, where she was buried. And so now Deborah's going to the tree of her namesake who lived centuries earlier, and she's kind of made this her place of business and ministry. Um, and it's her namesake, which I think is kind of interesting. It's kind of cool. You know, I mean, it may, again, it may not be true. They may just have named it after her at the last minute. I mean, she may, <laughs> That's have, right. she may have said, I'm sitting under this tree, and I'm going to declare this to be the tree of Deborah. Um, yeah. But I like Sam's idea better because I, I think that there's a whole bunch of this that goes on, especially mm-hmm. with God and the Old Testament and Israel, where things that are said are hearkening back and pulling our minds back to things that have happened before because, you know— my wife, one year, um, as a her Bible reading throughout the year, she read a chronological Bible where you know how they they have these things where they arrange everything and like it'll give you the first mm-hmm. six chapters of Genesis and then over to Job and then back to Genesis and it's, it takes you through in in the writing of what time period. Mm-hmm was being written about. It was a very interesting thing for her to to do that reading, but those are helpful. They are. And uh and, and she said to me, she said one of the things that really struck her was that as she continued on, it's like time and time and time again after the Exodus, they were just Israel is is like being that was such a huge like back God led us out of Egypt the Lord that took you out of Egypt mm-hmm. it's like that was the defining moment of their whole nation their whole culture and that was such a common thing that when things would happen and important people would live they were always calling your mind back to that because they mm-hmm. didn't forget the past you know it's like they that became their anchor you know the things that God had done for them in the past the people that God had worked through in the past became an anchor for them yeah and so I mean when they're finally back in the land and Jacob's nurse passes away, I mean, he's finally back to where God had called him to go. Um, and so Jacob, who is Israel, you know, his name has changed to Israel and he has sons that now make up the, all of the people of Israel. He's back in the land. And so this spot would have been rather sentimental um, to the Israelites. And mm-hmm. so Deborah says, I'm going to set up shop here. This is a cool place. Yeah. So uh, he says, the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. I want to stop for just one second and say, when I read this the first time, I had to go back and read it again because it says in verse 7, and against you I, that's God. Mm-hmm. will deploy Sisera. So those 900 chariots that Israel was all afraid of, God was like, I'm going to pull these guys out against you. Like the mm-hmm. battle that took place <laughs> was specifically the battle that God wanted to take place. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting thing, man. It's like we were talking about how these 900 chariots were so intimidating, and God said, we're not just going to fight against Jabin and his people there and Sisera, his commander. We're going to fight against those 900 chariots that you're so worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, so the whole description, of that, and then the last sentence, and I will deliver him into your hand. That's the part they had to believe. Yeah. And so, so when you start putting together the details, I mean, if you're an Israelite and you know your story, start thinking about how you're hearing this. Hey, 
I'm going to call you out into a particular territory. I'm going to take your enemy, who, by the way, is very, very tightly associated with Egypt and Sisera as the servant of Ra and all this stuff, and they're coming with all their chariots, and I'm going to lead them by a major body of water. What's that make you think of? Yeah, yeah exactly right. <laughs> That's, so he's drawn your mind to the Red Sea and what Moses is doing, right? And then I'm going to give them into your hand. And so he's like, do you believe that what I did for Moses and your forefathers, I'm going to do for you again? That is really cool because, like we, like I was just saying, the the Exodus, this pattern is repeating itself again because once yeah. again, God's going to deliver them. Um, and so she calls this guy Barak, whose name, as you said, means lightning. And Barak said to her, "If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go." Yeah, that says two really interesting things uh, here. One is, you know, Barak is not presented as this lightning, you know, like yeah. you imagine lightning like is <laughs> strong and unassailable, like he's going to get his way. And he's like, hey, if you don't go, I'm not going. So it says, you know, Barak, who, by the way, is going to be listed in the Heroes of Faith, which is kind of incredible. Um, Barak has this bit of coward cowardice with him. But beyond that, it says how much he thinks of her. Like, he may not think of himself as big, but he knows if Deborah goes. He's got such this picture of Deborah in his brain that she's so close to God, of course God's going to do major things through her. Mm -hmm. Like, that's his person. If you go, then I know I'm safe. Mm -hmm. Like, think of that. It's like, you know, Jesus calling Peter out onto the water. Like, I'm not coming unless you command me. <laughs> like, you know, and and Barak has that kind of sense with Deborah. If you go, I know I'll be safe. Yeah. But if you don't go, like, God is so with you, Deborah. I'm not going if you don't go. Another interesting note, by the way, Barak, the name meaning lightning, is the son of Abinoam. And the name Abinoam means either my father is pleasant or father of pleasantness. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking, well, he was pleasant lightning. <laughs> you know, it's like he was he was he was lightning, but he was a very gentle kind of lightning. Yeah. And that, that word pleasant it can also mean kindness. Yes. So it's a kind of lightning. Bolt. Kind of. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Barack says, if you go, I go. If you're not going to go, I'm going to stay home. And her response is, and she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, of course, just reading that, we're going to assume that, well, she's just saying that if I go with you, people are going to give me credit for it. But that's actually not going to be what turns out yeah. to happen. So that's kind of a prophetic thing. I mean, if this wasn't a prophetic statement, it turned out to be one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, when you're reading it, you're assuming it's going to be Deborah, but yeah. it's not going to be Deborah. Yeah, it's not. So uh, Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now, Heber the Canite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. Why can't these guys be named Bob and Steve? And, <laughs> and it pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, Zananim, there we go, which is near Kadesh. When Cicero was told that uh, Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Cicero called out all his chariots, 900 chariots, all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagayim to the river Kishon. So the battle is pitched here. He gets, mm -hmm. uh, Barak calls out his troops. They all come down there and, and get with him on this, backed up to this water. And Cicero thinks, 
He's got to be thinking, this is a layup. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, if you're thinking about that, it's just going to be like, yeah, you know, it's going to be a walk in the park, guys. A little exercise. You know, get the chariots out. You know, the horses need to run. Uh, Make sure the wheels are (laughs) lubed up, that kind of stuff. He's not not expecting any kind of problem. I'm thinking they're pretty casual coming down to this encounter. Verse 14, and Deborah said to Barak, up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. You know, I also think that it's interesting because, you know, the the word up, okay, it's that that same word, what is it, qual or something like that, can also oh. mean arise. And one of the things that you and I talk about all the time is that these that that word a lot of times that gets um, translated funny in some of these English translations. They'll say "get ready" or "prepare yourselves" or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I really like it when they leave it with "arise" because mm-hmm. I think that so much of the of the Bible is is also calling our mind to language of resurrection of saying, "Look, you know, this is it. You know, rise up. This is resurrection. You know, that sort of thing. The people of God arise." Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's you know it's, it's just interesting that's that's how she starts with Barak. You know, arise. And you're going to see that in the song. That becomes a, a word. This idea of of awakening and arising. Both of them make it in the the celebratory song that follows in chapter five. Those words play a big part in it. So it's very intentional. And it's also interesting too that she is now you know she's confirming right with him. Like, this is not the day that you're going to, like, this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does mm-hmm. not the Lord go out before you? So she's pounding into Barack's head that I understand what it's like to stand there and look at 900 chariots of iron. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it was the same encouragement, you know, that came to Moses. The Lord will fight for you, you know. It, it, all you have to do is, is, now in their case, all they had to do was stand and be still, and the Lord will fight for you. But that's the idea. It's going to be the Lord who gives the victory, not a brilliant strategy, not your weapons. You're outgunned on every turn. Your only hope is that the Lord shows up. And uh, verse 15 says, and the Lord routed Sisera. And I want to stop and say that that's something that we get more about in chapter 5 from the song of Deborah. We find out more of what God did. It says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. Um, So the idea basically that God sent Mm -hmm. a flash flood. (laughs) And if there's Mm -hmm. one thing that... You know, the 900 chariots of iron don't deal well with, it's mud. Um, But it's also interesting that how did the chariots get overcome at the Red Sea? They got overcome Mm -hmm. with water. So once again, God overcomes the chariots of the enemy with water, which is kind of interesting as well. Again, more thinking back to that picture of Egypt. I mean, the Lord is totally showing up and he's rehearsing this. Um, you know, and he's pl- he's showing them, hey, the same God who delivered them from from Egypt, I'm now delivering you from um, the Canaanites. Sisera gets routed, and it says that um, Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot, which has to be an ignominious way for the servant of Ra <laughs> <laughs> to exit the battlefield. <laughs> Things have not gone well when the servant of Ra is hightailing it on foot off the battlefield. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it says that Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Haggayim. Now, that's where they came from, right? So, like, Mm -hmm. all the way back to their 
you know, like they ran home. He chased them all the way home. Um, and all the and the all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So the other thing, too, that does this not seem to you a little bit like a cowardly act to, to run away? Yeah. Sisera. Oh, being, totally. Being a coward here. I mean, you absolutely. Know, and and by, that's that's setting up a parallel of what what happens between Deborah and um, Barak is now going to happen between Sisera and the woman he's about to meet, Jael. <laughs> and and what you, what you do is you find the big heroes, right? So Barak is supposed to be the general. He's supposed to be the one who's strong, who's out leading the armies, and Sisera the same side except for the other army, the Canaanites, and both of them, and and both of their cases, as you'll see here in just a moment. Both of them come to women saying, will you protect me? <laughs> you know, it's, it's Barack going to, to Deborah saying, I'm not going unless you come with me. And here in a minute, you're going to see Sisera showing up at the tent of a young woman who – and he's saying, please protect me. Yeah, so Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite, which was mentioned earlier. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Haber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her in the tent, and she covered him with a rug. (laughs) I love that. Uh, And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk, and this will become interesting when we talk about the names involved here in just Mm -hmm. a minute, and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say, nope. (laughs) (laughs) So again, basically saying, I know I'm the commander of 900 chariots of iron, but uh, hide me and protect (laughs) me. Yeah, the servant of Ra. Servant of Ra, yes. But Jael, the wife of Haber, took a tent peg. And took a hammer in her hand, and when those words are used together in a sentence, you know it's not going to end well. (laughs) Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And to which I wanted to say, do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Just a flesh wound. Just a flesh wound. That's it. So, uh, you know, I'm... Boy, there's a lot of things here. I mean, now yeah, there you, are. you talked about the fact that um, that Sisera, servant of Ra, this idea mm-hmm. of the viper and the disc and everything else. Um, how were you connecting that to how he died? Yeah. Here? So, so if you go back all the way to the beginning of Genesis three, there's the the big promise of the gospel that comes. It's when God is is condemning the serpent for having led man into ruin, into sin and death. And he says, you know, I'm going to put enmity between you and and the woman. And then he says, the seed of the woman is going to come forth and crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. And so here in this story, here you have the woman who's come forth, and then you have Sisera, and now he's not Ra, but it, it invites you to picture Ra, the one who has the serpent crowned head, and here you have the woman who's going to literally crush the head of Sisera. And even, you know, in the in the ancient world, the way that word sounds, like what is that, onomatopoeia or whatever mm-hmm. it's yeah. called, mm-hmm. it, it, it invited you to recognize things. And so Sisera has that that voice that sounds serpentine, you know, mm-hmm. or the, the name sounds serpentine, Sisera. Hmm. And so she's going to crush the head of Sisera. And salvation, the glory, by the way, comes to her. Remember the promise a woman is going to get the glory? Sure. Well, here, Jael is the one who gets the glory. And how does she get the glory? By crushing the head of the enemy. That mm-hmm. brings peace to all the people. And so this woman 
takes on uh, it's kind of a gross <laughs> it's kind of a disturbing story of a woman slamming a tent peg through this guy's temple and killing him but that's the Christ moment who crushes the enemy to give peace to her people wow. or to the people of Israel and by the way she's a Kenite which is interesting so you know it's it's bringing in other people into the story of salvation which is kind of cool mm-hmm you know, and I made the aside to she opened a skin of milk, and that was going to become significant because you and I were talking earlier about the different names and what they meant. And I said that Deborah, of course, means a bee, uh, which is the sting, but also the sweet, the honey. And then you mentioned something about JL's name. Yeah, JL's literally means mountain goat. Which, which, when you're naming your daughter, <laughs> <laughs> mountain goat's probably mountain not goat. in the book of you're names. Right. No. <laughs> But, but Jael's name means mountain goat, and where did they? What did a mountain goat produce back then? Well, it produced milk, and so, you know, it's it's not only the picture of you know she's literally going to give Sisera a glass of milk, which is you know when you drink warm milk, it puts you to sleep, is the idea, right? So she's scheming, but literally a mountain goat produces milk, and so you take those two names, Deborah, and you take Jael, and what they produce, the bee produces. Honey, the mountain goat produces milk. We'll put those together, and you have these two women, Deborah and Jael, who secure God's promise first given to Moses that he would give his people a land flowing with milk and honey. Milk and honey. Yeah. And so here you have Deborah and Jael. It's almost like gifts straight from the hand of God to all of his people who are going to preserve the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey for the Israelites. Mm. It's really cool. Beautiful poetry here. It says, And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. And I'm thinking, <laughs> if I was Jael, I'm not taking that tent peg out of his temple because I'm afraid this guy might get up <laughs> off the ground. Who knows what? Until. Until somebody shows up to take him away, I'm just leaving him stapled to the ground yeah. there. <laughs> and he's still got the rug on him. He's, yes. he's just become a household fixture. He has. We'll just leave him there. <laughs> Get the taxidermist. Yeah. We'll be good. Stuff him right where he is. It'll be fine. We have it. We have a Sisera skinned rug in our, our tent. So, <laughs> so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan, which is, uh, that's, you know, one of the things that's really impressive about that is when, when I was kind of looking things up in the beginning, I was looking to see, you know, the size of armies, some of that. We talked about the, the 900 uh, chariots of iron. And as you said, those were the select chariots, you know, the special chariots, the best ones out there. So Josephus in Antiquities credits the Canaanite army. He says he ha- they have 3,000 chariots, 10,000 horsemen, and 300,000 footmen. So an infantry of 300,000. I mean, there's no way that Israel had anywhere near that yeah. kind of military force. No, it, it's it's over and done with if God doesn't show up. I mean, but but God looking at an army that big just kind of goes, gulp. <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah. Here's a flash flood and takes care of them. It's just um, not that big a problem for him. Yeah. And he stations I've, – I've heard two different – you know, when, when uh, Barak leads the army down Mount Tabor into the valley. So these mountains are surround the Jezreel Valley, and the river runs through it. And so if Barak is stationed on Tabor, he's got the military advantage. 
And if you're going up against an army of chariots, you would never go down into the plain because that's where you're vulnerable to the chariots. You'd stay on the mountain. Right. And here you have them being called to give up the high ground, and they go down, and they just rout them, and this flash flood comes along and just whoosh. You know, the idea is God just drives them in, and the, the waters take them away while they're being slaughtered. You know, their, their chariots become useless, as you said. Yeah. The one thing an art chariot of iron can't deal with is a bunch of mud. Uh, that is interesting. <laughs> but I also think that, you know, when it says that the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan, um, this was goes back to something of last week that we were talking about, is that once again, this has to do with, you know, this was land that God had given his people, and he told his people to go and take possession of the land. And when the people were willing to follow the Lord and do what the Lord said, they were given possession of the land that he gave them, you know, and I'm always kind of looking for these, you know, sort of modern day uh, applications of this stuff. I mean, it's just because that's how I connect into these stories. And when I look at Israel's behavior in Judges, like you said earlier, you keep seeing the repetitive. They keep turning from the Lord. And how many times do we turn from the Lord and, and keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again? And what I see is Israel being unwilling to do, to go and do what God says to actually take mm-hmm. the ground he said is their ground. And I'm thinking about mm-hmm. myself. It's like, how many times do I feel like God tells me to do something and I hold up with this, that doesn't seem reasonable or that doesn't seem safe you know, or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. But if God has told you to take the ground, you need to go and take the ground. Yeah. Even if there's a bunch of chariots of iron. I, th- I think one of the equivalents that you know, just came to mind is if he's telling you to take the ground, all of it, and not to, not to, to make compromise here with, with all these different people that are dangerous, it's like you know, if God asks you to walk away from an addiction and you put boundaries around it and say, but I can really handle it, you, you know how that story ends, right? Yep. You know, that is going to overtake you. Like, you have to purge it. You have to get rid of it. If you've got an addiction, you can't manage it. You can't do a little bit of it. It it will overtake you. And, and you see that same thing. Like, you can't flirt with all of this idolatry that's going on and the wickedness of the Canaanites, which, you know, we've talked about before. Really wicked culture. Um, every time when when they flirt with it, it just overtakes the Israelites, and the Israelites become wicked like them. So it is also, it's kind of interesting to me also that uh, Judges 9.53, a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head mm-hmm. and crushed his yep. skull. In the book of Judges, you know, one of the things that you find again and again is there's n- a number of very noble female heroes. Um, so you have Aksa who secures the springs. You have Deborah. You have Jael. And then Judges 9, you're going to have a woman who saves Israel from the tyranny of Abimelech by dropping a millstone on his head. And, you know, don't miss that again because guess what? There's another head being crushed by a woman um, who's going to deliver Israel. Um, and women take a place of nobility in this book with the exception of Delilah. She, she's not so good. <laughs> but you see in the book of Judges, in the ancient world, this would have been extraordinarily shameful to have the women lifted up as heroes and the men kind of shown to be cowardly oftentimes. Right. Well, and that story that you referenced from Judges uh, 9, where the woman dropped the millstone on Abimelech said and crushed his skull, it didn't instantly kill him. And that, and to, to your point, mm-hmm. um, Abimelech turned to his armor bearer and says, hey, take your sword out and kill me with your sword, lest men say of me, 
a woman mm-hmm. killed him. And so his armor bearer did, took his sword and killed him. And, and it says that that's how God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 <laughs> brothers. Um, this is the son of Gideon. So I look at that and I think he was so determined in that case to not be killed by a woman that he mm-hmm. turns to his his armor bearer, his servant, basically, and said, hey, kill me so that they don't realize that this big rock that's crushed my head is what's going to do me in. And, and I mean, when you're when you're looking at the heroes, like you look at Barak, not so good. You, you know, he's not he's not the fearless warrior. Sisera's not the fearless warrior. When you meet Gideon, who's going to be the next judge we talk about, how how do we meet him? What's he doing? He's he's terrified, hiding in a wine press. You know, terrified of the people who have conquered, you know have captured Israel in that day. And so all of these men. Then you get Samson, who's a total reprobate. You get Jephthah, who's kind of a He's going to be a, a moron, you know, who doesn't know the word of God, you know, who's listed in the, the Hall of Faith again, but his daughter becomes the noble Christ-like one, and she'll be, you know, give her life to save Israel. And so, in the book of Judges, you've got all these women that come forth, Deborah, Aksa, Jael, Jep- Jephthah's daughter, uh, the woman who <laughs> incapacitates, to put it nicely, <laughs> Abimelech by dropping a stone on his head. Like you've got multitudes of these women that come forth that are very honorable, and I love that that's in the scriptures, you know, because that's, that's how the Lord works, you know. He, he takes those that society looks at and goes, no way, not them, and he uses them in a mighty way. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we have time to go through the entire like song of Deborah and Barack. Uh, and I do, I do think that people are, it would be good if people went and, and read it for themselves. But mm-hmm. um, there was one thing in there that also stuck out to me when I read through it. And that was verse seven of chapter five, um, where she's, in, she's writing and she says village life ceased it ceased in Israel until I Deborah arose mm-hmm. arose a mother in Israel which you know again does that mean that she had kids at home and she left them with the nanny and went out to lead Israel I don't know maybe <laughs> maybe it did but what what occurred to me when I read that is I suddenly had this picture of Jesus where he's looking out over Jerusalem and he's weeping over Jerusalem and saying that he wanted to gather, you know, hey, Israel, I wanted to gather you to myself as a hen gathers her chicks, a mother hen gathers her chicks. And, and there are maternal aspects to God and, and parts of his character. And, um, and in this case, it's like suddenly the Deborah to me kind of connected to that Christ figure, that mm. that sense that Jesus had of wanting to protect Israel the way that a mother would protect her children or a hen would protect her chicks. Um, you mm. know, just I kind of made that connection at that point of Deborah and and sort of a Christ figure. Yeah, there's there's an interesting historical note here as well that's kind of cool. Um, the oldest mention of Israel in archaeology that's outside of the Bible is, um, or one of the oldest, is called the Merneptah Stele, and it's it's this massive stone thing where Egypt recorded all the stuff that was going on in is around the world among their enemies at the time. And one of the one of the lines is it mentions Israel by name, and on the this Merneptah thing it says Israel is laid waste. And then this is the next line. It's seed. In other words, it's children are no more. Hmm. Um, and so this particular Pharaoh is boasting Israel is doomed. It's laid waste. Its seed is not. And it, it dates to 1215, which is about where we should find Deborah. And so when you hear Deborah say the villagers ceased in Israel, they ceased until I arose. 
I, Deborah, arose as a mother to Israel. I mean, it's kind of the counter to what's being said in this Egyptian record, because Egypt is saying Israel's toast, and it's not having kids anymore. And then you have Deborah kind of countering what's coming out of Egypt, you know, saying, oh, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, here's the deal. It ceased until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel, and I've brought life back to the promised land. Hmm. It's very cool. That's the, that is, by the way, the other time that Shamgar does make an appearance is in Judges mm-hmm. 5 and verse 6, where it says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, <laughs> and the travelers walked along the byways. So, so Shamgar basically, you know, makes poor Shamgar. That guy just didn't get any any credit. <laughs> Deborah's nice enough to give him another line. She gives another, another line. She gives him another line. You know, but one of the things that's interesting, we talked about how the whole story of Deborah is is it's inviting you to go back and remember the Exodus, right? It's so you got the chariots and the servant of Ra and coming along, and here's the chariots along the water, and that's where God's going to deal with them. But after the victory, you have Deborah and Barak that break out in song, praising God for his victory. Well, what happens after the Red Sea? In Exodus 15, you get the song of Moses and Miriam. So man and woman come together, and they offer up a song of praise. And so when when this story is followed by the song of Deborah and Barak, it's like it's saying, this is another Exodus. And now we're going to have another song. Um, and it's really fascinating. Like God is showing that he's going to be faithful to these generations just like he was faithful to Moses and Miriam. Yeah. Um, there's more of a description of the battle in the song of Deborah and Barak. Um, it says, the, the kings came and fought, then the kings of Canaan fought in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away, that ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. O oh my soul, march on in strength. Then the horse's hooves pounded the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Morose, said the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants bitterly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. And and this is also, by the way, pointing, I think, to the final battle that comes in the story of Revelation. You know, in, in verse 19 there, you said, and in Deborah's song, she says, the kings came and they fought, they fought the kings of Canaan by the waters of Megiddo. And that's not a throwaway line. Megiddo, in, in Hebrew, the word for mountain is har. So you would add that to the beginning. And so Megiddo is on top of a mountain. The city of Megiddo is one of the places where more battles have been fought on earth than any other place. This place was always a place of battle because it was right in the valley of Jezreel where all the forces would meet. And so when you put the name together, Har, meaning mountain, Mm -hmm. or Mount Megiddo, Har Megiddo, guess what word we get from that? Har Megiddo. Armageddon. Armageddon. Ah, okay. So the final battle, when Jesus comes back, and you know the, the battle is Armageddon, that's not by chance, it's because Megiddo is the place where battles happen. Armageddon, it's described in Revelation that he will bring forth in his wrath and justice a fury that makes blood flow as high as the horse's bridles, it says. It's a really kind of a disturbing picture. But here you're going to have the horses, the armies that are going to be drowned again in, in the Battle of Armageddon. And so Deborah's, Deborah's song here is a little bit prophetic of what's going to come in the end. Hmm. The Lord is going to lead this battle to free his people. And then J.L. features in here, most blessed of women be J.L., the wife of Haber the Kenite. Um, as you say, it's these side figures sometimes that are 
the the really interesting ones in these stories because they're be mentioned for like one quick second, one thing that they did in in the scriptures, and sometimes it's something big, like I I stapled Sisera's head to the ground with a tent peg, um, and, <laughs> and, and and I mean, and other times it'll be you know so and so gave somebody shelter or gave them you know helped them out along the way or something like that and and then later on you know names that you wouldn't expect pick back up in history and are called back to by god and um you know you don't really know where that moment is that god is going to give you something to do but it's going you know it, it by itself may seem now obviously General Cicero, ten pegs. That's a big thing. You, she knew what she was doing, but because um, because Deborah actually points out here, and you actually said this too. Um, you said something about you know milk, and she goes right to sleep. And in mm-hmm. the song of Deborah and Barak, it says that uh, Cicero asked her for water, and she gave him milk. Mm-hmm. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. <laughs> <laughs> it's like here's a sleeping pill, Mister yeah. Cicero. You know that kind of a thing. But turkey just, sandwich yeah. with lots of tryptophan. Yes. So, but the idea basically being that that we don't know when we're going to be given our moment that God needs us to do something. But mm-hmm. what's required is that we be faithful and that we play our part and that we do these things. And we don't know sometimes how they're going to play out in history or how they're going to work into God's purpose, but we know that they will Mm -hmm. because all things, God works all things, good things, bad things, in between things. He works things to to accomplish his purposes. Um, And that is something that, you know, from these sort of heroic stories, I love the fact that there are there are these sideline characters that aren't the focal point of the story necessarily, mm-hmm. but become incredibly important because of they played their part. One of the things that I love the most about this story is just seeing God's faithfulness in this, like he is going to protect his people even though they don't deserve it. And I think of all the people in the story that I can relate to the most, it's Barak who, you know, the Lord has come to me and said, hey, Sam, Here's your mission, and I'm going. (laughs) You know, I I don't know how that's going to turn out. I don't know if I have the courage to go do it. And so, what Barack says is, Deborah, I know that you're so highly favored of God that if you go with me, I'll go. And what's the promise to us? Like, here's the Son of God who you can't get any more highly favored than Jesus Christ, right? In the eyes of the Father, and Jesus says to us, what? Here, I'm giving you a mission. I want you to go to the ends of the earth. I want you to baptize the nations and teach them to command you. And then what does he say? And lo, I will be with you always, Always. even to the end of the age. And so that sense that we have like Brock where it's like, can you go with me, Deborah? Because I know that things will go well if you go with me. Here you have the son of God who looks at you and what he's calling you to do in this world. And he says, I'll be with you wherever you go, even to the end of the age. Now go. Well, you can trust in that. Well, we'll let that stand as our last word for this week. Uh, We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us. We'll be back next week with, as Sam said, the story of Gideon, which is another big one, another big judge, and lots of good stuff in that story as well. If you'd like to correspond with us, you can do that. The email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of our podcast at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, or on Spotify, or in our Rio Vista Church smartphone app available in an app store near you. We'll be back next week with more of Judges and Gideon, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. 
You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.